Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. Today, we're talking to the authors of the book, Hiring Greatness, How to Recruit Your Dream Team and Crush the Competition. It offers a behind-the-scenes look into the recruiting industry, particularly showing how any organization can make monumental hiring decisions that lead to massive success. We say behind the scenes because one of the authors is David Perry, an executive recruiter for Perry Martell International Incorporated, a full-service retained executive search firm featured on programs such as NBC, ABC, and also the New York Times. And also Mark Haluska. He is the founder and executive director of Real Time Network, a boutique executive search firm representing many Fortune 100 companies. Today, they have completed more than 1,800 search projects across five continents, maintaining a 99.97 success rate and negotiating more than $380 million in salaries. Mark and David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jim. Good morning. Okay, first question I have is, what happened to the other 0.3%? No, just joking. Well, I mean, you had 99.97. I was going to answer the question. <laughs> okay. On my end, I've done 1,071 searches now. I've made five errors. First one was the first one I ever did, like we're talking almost three decades ago. And technically, it wasn't a mistake. I hired a guy six months later. His boss changed, and his boss didn't like him, and they phoned me up and said, you know, we want you to replace this guy. So, And they made me responsible for talking to the candidate. So I called the candidate up and said, it's not working out. You know it. I know it. I'm going to replace you, but you have to stay there until, A, I find your replacement, and, B, I find you another job. That's the agreement I've made with your boss. Oh. And he said, fine. It weighed so heavily on me. Almost three decades ago, it weighed so heavily on me that, you know, I swore I'd never get put in that situation again. Because you're in the business, Jim. You know what it's like, or maybe you don't know what it's like, to put somebody in you know, and make a mistake. You turn their life upside down, and I never wanted that to happen again. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's another factor there, Jim. In fact, there was a study done by Robert Half of 1,400 executives, and they were surveyed, and they found that 30% of poor hires are attributed to unclear performance objectives. For example, I had a hire about six years ago, and about every 30 days I check in with the new person on the job, and he had a complaint. He said, I still don't know what's expected of me. I have no idea what they want me to do, what my performance standards are, and so that turned out to be a bad hire, and it wasn't something that we did. It was something the company did. When the person joined, they did not have observable and measurable performance standards. And for our audience, so we can track here, that was Mark, who would just comment as David started this out. And David, I want to come back to your comment, because I think a lot of people miss that. You feel bad about it when you make a mismatch, or a mismatch develops. And that's one of the attributes, no matter who's in the hiring position, whether an executive recruiter is assisting, or it's the hiring manager, or it's the HR person, I really don't care. If there's no remorse, if there's no, wow, that didn't work out, 
then you're probably going to keep getting mismatches. I think it's the number one quality that anybody doing hiring has to have because it's a huge responsibility. And the ironic part is, and maybe this will take us off topic for just a second, but the ironic part is very few people, whether HR or they're a hiring manager in an operational role or even an executive role, are taught how to do this well. You know, it's one of the reasons we finally decided we've got to write the book. It's not that hard to do it right the first time. There are correct processes or tracks you can lay down and go on. And, it, you know, people always have time to do it again. Very rarely do they have time to do it the first time. And unfortunately, in our industry, in the search business, in the recruiting industry, there's very little expertise. Uh, there are very few courses you can take that deal with the start-to-finish recruitment process. And we just thought that that was wrong and avoid we step in and try and add value to so that this kind of stuff doesn't happen again. Right. The lesson I learned from it was when I built my firm back in 88, the firm was designed around a one-year warranty. And I went with a one-year warranty because I was a sole proprietor in an industry that was very hot at the time, and I had no competitive differentiator. And the typical warranty was 30, 60, you might get 90 days. So, you know, I was, I couldn't get any deals for the first month or two, and finally I said to Prospect once, I said, well, I'll guarantee my work for a year. He said, you will? He said, yeah. I said, fine. That's how the one year came up accidentally. But then you've got to build a process to make sure you don't make a mistake and have to redo it because you know doing it right the first time is labor-intensive and difficult enough. Redoing it, you know, after you've redone one, you never want to do it again. Absolutely. We want to get into that today and the fact that you actually have a process that you can follow. And also, after reading the book, like you said, it's not that complex, but sometimes the simple things are hard to execute on. So let's step back just for a second. You've already touched on a little bit, but give me the state of employment today when you're conducting executive searches. Is it easier today? Is the talent available today? What's it like in the marketplace? I think it's harder, and the reason I say that is because in the last 30 years, even in the last 10 years, we've become one you know, giant economy around the globe. So the number of competitors that organizations have, you know, have multiplied. The number of strong leaders in any discipline has not multiplied at the same rate by any means. So while there's, there's more demand for talent and there's less talent, there's also more people on the sidelines because of a whole host of reasons, because of the automation that's happening. So there's lots of people. There's not necessarily a lot of talent. In fact, there's probably less talent because there's more demand. Are you with me or did I just no. fall off the cliff there? No, I'm with you. So the truly great people, you know, the people that we go after, they're not looking for a new opportunity. They have their heads down. They're productive. They're busy. They're performing for somebody else. I mean, we do true search work. We go out and look at the marketplace and find the leaders and then approach the leaders irrespective of whether or not they're interested in making a change. It's getting tougher because there's now more choice. When you have an upside-down economy like we have now, there's more choice for great candidates to choose from if they're going to make a move. And they're typically going to make it on their terms. So unless they're ready, and they're usually not, you have to have a packaged your opportunity in such a way that you can present it to them in bits and pieces over a period of a, oftentimes a couple of days, sometimes a couple of weeks, to get 
enough of their attention to go, okay, this is something that I should investigate. So it's gotten a lot harder. Probably the toughest thing is when you actually get someone's attention and you get them into the process and you get them to the end of the process, because the process can take, an interview process like this can take four or five weeks. By the time you get to the end of the process and they're looking at making a change, you know, their radar's up and all of a sudden their reticular activation system is on and all of a sudden all these other opportunities that they were not aware of because they weren't listening for them are out there and you run the risk of losing great talent at the last minute. Yeah, and I want to talk about, thanks for bringing that up. So what you're really saying is there's a difference between recruiting and conducting a search. Correct. And this book is about executive search. And the book we're not working on now is Executive Recruiting for Dummies. And there's a definite difference. So for our audience, say, explain to them. I mean, I caught it, but explain again what that difference is. The major difference is you're looking for the top 1% when you're doing executive search. You're looking for that one individual that you can bring on board who's really going to have an impact almost immediately in the fortunes of that organization, that company. That's executive search. And it's far more time-intensive, far more labor-intensive than recruiting, where you're looking for a great executive who may or may not be looking, but they're easily swayed because they're in an organization that's faltering or something like that. And it's still a great candidate, but they may be in the top 15% rather than the top 1%. And that's the major difference, in my opinion. The industry doesn't have any definition around this. Then is it fair to say that some positions, you really don't need a search, but you just need to do some recruiting? Yes. Okay. Right. Possibly less critical roles. I mean, all roles are important, but maybe not less, maybe some less critical roles you can do recruiting for versus doing a search. And I think what you said earlier is definitely true that a search generally finds that person who's not looking, but presented the right opportunity. And if he's in the right conditions, they would maybe entertain the idea. Correct. And that's what we're trying to do when you do a search is you're not trying to interview someone. You're trying to have a trying to start a discussion. Right. Before you ever pick up the phone, and you know this, but for your audience, before you ever pick up the phone to call that, you know, John Smith, who you want to have a discussion with because he's the person you've done the research and figured out he's the person that can solve your issue. You've done the research. You've figured out in the industry, according to where you're going, what you need, here are the top three people. And here's why they're the top three people. You've done all that research. You've used social media. You've talked to people in the industry. And you've come up with these three top individuals. Now the question is, how do I get to them? And what do I say to start that discussion? And if the discussion doesn't go the way you want, how do I repackage and go back? So, Mark, if there is a difference between recruiting and conducting a search, what is the key in your opinion, your experience, in being able to search out and connect with that 1% that David said that you're looking for? Jim, I'm not sure what you're saying there. Well, how do you find that 1%? If we're searching for these people, how do you find them? First, how do you find them? Then, how do you connect with them? Well, if they are any good in their field, people are going to know about it. And how they know about it is through, uh, through sites like Zoom Info. Zoom Info is our number one tool that we use to start researching people. And by just keying in some keywords, Zoom Info will start popping up information on people that are in the industry that you're looking for. And you can see what they've done relative to their work. Because whenever anybody is good at something, there's information, newsletters, news articles, and so forth written about them. 
and it all appears on an information aggregator like Zoom Info. And what we like to do is we'll find somebody on Zoom Info, see what they have done, then we'll oftentimes cross-reference them with LinkedIn. I'm sure you're familiar with LinkedIn. Cross-reference them on LinkedIn, and then we start looking at uh, their profile. But we also look to see what other people have said about them on LinkedIn. We pick up the phone, and we'll even call those people and say, what's this person like? Are they a good leader? Hmm. We'll know a lot about these people before we ever pick up the phone. Can I give you a recent example? Please do. We were working for a large construction engineering firm. The firm wanted to go in a new direction. So one of the things they wanted to do was find someone who was a leader. You know, actually, what they wanted was the best guy in that industry and figure out how to acquire them. So what we did was we turned it over to the research team, and what they did is they went out and did a periodical research and of all the top environmental engineering projects the last 10 years and traced that back to who led that project, who led it, and brought us back that list. And from that list, you know, we said, okay, well, here are the four people that are the same across all these projects. Now, what is it that we have to offer this individual based on where they are, what they've done, where we think the trajectory is headed? You know, how do we talk to them and reach them? So, you know, that was the process that we went through before we ever picked up the phone to call the individual. That makes sense? It makes a lot of sense. And what I also picture is how many companies would do that on their own, meaning... Many. Yeah. (laughs) And the reason not too many would, Jim, is because in corporate America, your typical HR person, even your typical person who's in HR slash recruiting, which falls under the umbrella of human resources, they're not going to pick up the phone and engage anybody for any reason. They want to post a resume, put it out there on, you know, Indeed, Simply Hired, you know, wherever, and sit back and wait for the phone to ring and for the resumes to come in, as opposed to what David and I do is if we find somebody, in a manner of speaking, they become a target, and we go after them directly. Corporate America just doesn't do it that way. I sense sometimes that corporate America doesn't have a recruiting or search process. They have a resume screening process. Correct. So they get the best. So oftentimes in corporate America, they'll run an ad, which is, you know, which the way people have done it for decades. And it's a great process they go through to find the best person who applies for that ad. But that limits them to whoever was looking that day on LinkedIn, Secunet, Indeed, and saw that ad. And that's a subset often of the talent that's available You know, we talk in the book about the concept of abundance. If you assume everybody is a potential candidate, that's completely different from looking for the best person that applied to an ad. Because there may be 15 people that applied for an ad or 1,500, when there's really, you know, 5,000 that are fantastic or potential targets. And inside that group of 5,000, you know, there are five absolute stars but they're not looking. It's like the old days. You know, they're not reading the newspaper ads. They're not surfing job boards. They're heads down. I mean, we know this because, and you know this, because we're in the business of doing this. So if you go out with a mindset of abundance and everybody is a candidate, you know, and you can build your team from scratch with anybody you want. You know, I compare it to, you know, fantasy football. You compare it to anybody, you compare all the players and choose which players you want 
that's how you build a great team and a great organization. Not picking the best of the people that applied for a job, but figuring out who the best are and going and having a conversation with them and going, hey, this is what we're doing. Here's our vision. Here's our why, Simon Sinek would say. And get someone to drawn into your cause, if you can paint it as a cause. That's how you build a great team. One player at a time, looking at all the players that are out there. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, and is that why, which I was a little surprised, but not after I read it, when I read your book, the first chapter is you start by defining value. Correct. Why is that, uh, for, again, for people who have not read the book, why do you start with defining value? Well, value is on two sides. And first we define it on the client side. What's the end result? What are they hoping to get hiring this individual into this role? And it's different in every single company. But if we understand why they value it, and what their values are, it's a long conversation, what their values are in terms of the type of individual, not the skill set, not the experience, the type of individual that's going to work best with their team. And by best, I don't mean get along. I mean, I do, but that's not the entirety of it. You know, what skill sets do they bring that fill the gap that maybe this executive team doesn't even know they have? That's the first part of the process. And once you understand that, then you can go out to the market and you can explain to a prospect, potential target, here's what's in it for you. Here's what you're doing or you've done that they need, and here's where they're going. Does that fit with what you want to do for the next 10 years? So you're matching the values on both sides. I mean, that's a two-chapter discussion in 30 seconds. But one that people should have. Yes, because it makes a difference between being able to choose who you want on your team and picking someone that's second place or third place. Remember British Bulldog? We used to pick sides for British Bulldog. You know, if there's 15 people on the line, you want to pick number one. You don't want to be stuck picking number 15. Right. <laughs> you want to build the strongest team possible. Yes, people get offended because they're picked last. But, you know, people can improve. So business is war. I mean, we talk about the book. I compared it when I sold it to Wiley. I said, this book is Jim Collins' Good to Great with Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And they were concerned that that was going to be a very aggressive, violent book. And it's not, because the best way to win is to have the other person surrender. Right. So if you do all the research ahead of time, that makes it easy for you to go, you're the one, and for them to go, yeah, I get it. I see what's in it for me. It's no contest. Yeah. So the, you know, the secret that Sun Tzu had was all the advanced planning that he used to do. Probably off topic. Sorry, Jim. No, you're right on topic. So part of the advanced planning, and you mentioned this early on, was when you reach this person who have their heads down, they're focused on their work, they're being well compensated, and you call one day and say, hey, ever thought of, considered, maybe, and they go, hmm, possibly I would. You said that you have to, over a period of time, maybe a day or two or three days or sometimes three weeks, kind of spoon feed them the opportunity. So how do you get a company to help you do that? And because usually what I find frustrating is, well, here's the job description. <laughs> and it's like, okay, uh, pull out your job description and see if it resembles anything like you're doing today. What do you have other than a job description that would attract a top performer? So how do you get companies to, I guess, add that component of here's what the opportunity is all about? Well, that's a great question. Mark, I'm going to jump in and explain this because it's a two-document process and a two-call process. Yeah. 
So here's how this works. The first thing we do with a client is we work with them to define the job description so that we understand exactly what the outcomes are so we can explain it to a potential candidate. Here's exactly what you're going to be doing and here's how you get measured. That's really important. There's no vagueness in any of this. Then we take that document, which is really rather dry and dull, and we turn it into a position profile. Now, a position profile really is an external marketing document, and I know people in recruiting aren't used to the term marketing, but you're out selling this opportunity. So we put together a five- to seven-page position profile, which highlights the company, the opportunity, what we're looking for in the ideal candidate, and if it's done correctly, when the person is reading this, we'll talk about how they get that in a second, when they're reading this, they're going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a mental checkbox. Done it, done it, done it, done it, done it. Got the T-shirt. And then we talk about, in the document, where this leads, what the mission is, why they might be interested. So that's a marketing document. What we do with that is, once we have the target list, we'll call these people, introduce ourselves, and say, listen, Jim, I want to talk to you about this opportunity, know you're really busy, and I don't want to pitch it over the phone. I'm a lousy salesman. So what I prefer to do is get a confidential email address. Let me just send you this information. You, when you have five minutes, sit down and take a read. And if it's something that we should talk about, call me back. And, of course, we're going to call them back in a couple days anyway if we don't hear from them. And then when we connect the next time, which is probably two or three days later, you know, they've read it and they go, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, or no, in which case we understand why the no, and maybe we have to repackage and repitch. But usually we get a, well, tell me a little bit more about it. And we'll say, well, you've got it in front of you. What I'd really rather know is, you know, can you take five minutes now to just sort of take me through your career, roll yourself back to when you're getting out of, you know, university and, you know, bring me through your career? And most people say, well, five minutes, it's going to take me a little bit longer than that. Hey, listen, take your time. If now's a good time, great. If not, let's talk later. So when we have that call, we listen, and they take us through their career from when they started to where they are now. And what we're essentially looking for is a whole bunch of factors on our list. But primarily, we're looking for someone who's got a strong internal locus of control. They're self-driven. They're moving forward under their own steam. And, you know, they're recounting their successes. They're probably not mentioning their failures. We'll get that the next time. We're taking notes. And it's in that call that we decide, okay, we should have a, you know, a longer conversation. And somebody will say... <laughs> Well, I don't have a resume. And for 95% of the people that say that, the recruiter will say, well, you know, when you got one together or put one together over the weekend, call me back. And the search ends there because they're busy. They don't have time as it is, and they don't know enough about the opportunity to be excited. So what we say is, you know, forget about the resume. Not interested, Jim. What we're going to do is we're going to send you, and this is Mark's invention, what we call a confidential candidate brief. It's got 15 questions on it. Just sit down when you got a couple of minutes, probably take you 20 minutes, and answer these questions. And what that does, two things. It tells the person we're talking to, the prospect, what's really important for us to know, and it gives us the answers in terms of how their background lines up with what we want. They're custom building a resume for the role. And then when we get that back, we read it, and it's either fit or not a fit. And, and if it's a fit, we'll say, well, listen, why don't we have a face-to-face? And that's where the fun begins. Mm-hmm. You know, we've already done a benchmark interview eons before we started this with the client. So now the fun begins to face-to-face, and we assess fit. And we essentially ask them the same question we asked the first time. You know, roll us back to when you're getting out of university and take us through your career. 
And we do it for two reasons. One, we really want to understand the story. And we really want to see if it's consistent because, you know, we're looking to, there's a section in the book called Don't Hire a Liar. We're looking to screen people out as well as in. Don't want to get to the end of the process and be doing references because our references are rigorous. You don't want to get to the end of the process, do references and find out, uh, not the guy. I'd rather know ahead of time. So we listen to that interview. We might do it on the phone, but generally face-to-face. And I'll ask questions. Mark will take notes. It's a very structured interview. And at the end of it, we'll answer all their questions as well. And we'll make a mutual decision. Hey, should you meet the search chair? And then, then you're in the process. Did that sum it up well enough? Absolutely. And you hit upon it there, and I was trying to draw back to it, that by going through the process you're talking about, you're really screening. And yes. a lot of firms don't screen. A lot of companies don't screen, especially if they come from the scarcity mentality. This is the best we've seen. We need to get them in here. We'll overlook a lot of things. Let's get them in here. (laughs) And actually, Jim, we are screening right up until the point it's time to meet with a search chair. Oh, absolutely. We we could be screening for weeks. We had a client. Oh, they flew a person in. He had all the right stuff, did all the right stuff, really looked good. And they went to dinner. And they came back after dinner the next day. And I said, what would you think? He says, we'll never hire him. And because the person had gone through... All this process and dinner was kind of the last thing. He thought he's going to get an offer. They talked about a lot of things. But the way the person treated the waiter, the some of the things he talked about personally, the president came back and said, this guy's just not going to be a fit. Technically, he can do the job. He has a track record of success. He's just not going to be a fit for this company. And I thought, now, isn't that interesting? One of the last things they did was took the guy to dinner for you know with two or three other company people and under the guise of, hey, we're going to have, go out and have a good time. And what they really were doing was screening, trying to find that last look. So I agree with you. You're always screening. And thank goodness that they found that out. Because, you know, people have patterns, patterns of success, patterns of loss, patterns of how they treat people, patterns of, you know, entitlement and how they feel about themselves and others. And it's really hard to get that out in an interview. Right. It's a little bit easier when you, you know, knock down all the walls and you call it a business discussion. But, you know, let's not kid ourselves. They know it's an interview. And by the time, you know, we're into the second interview, they're normally there to impress. And, you know, they're selling. And we're trying to to sell and buy at the same time. But the dinner interview, whether it's lunch, dinner, or breakfast, doesn't matter. Absolutely critical, especially for a senior executive. You have to understand how this individual is going to treat your best customer. You have to understand how that individual is going to treat all of your staff that you've worked so hard to hire, that are wonderful people and don't need to have an idiot, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing, you know, brought into the mix. One of the last things we do before we actually, before the dinner interview, is we have the candidate, and this started years ago because of sales rules, we have the candidate stand up and take the board and or the selection committee through a PowerPoint. You know, here's what I understand. Here's where we are. Here's where we want to be. Here's what I understand to be the roles, responsibilities, the authority, and what we have to do. We're looking to see, A, did they get it? You know, did we explain it correctly? But it's not so much the presentation itself. It's the lead-up to the presentation. What kind of information did they ask for? How did they treat you know, the CEO's executive assistant? What kind of information did they go and get? Who did they reach out to in the industry? You know, to get the background that they need to make this kind of call, this kind of presentation. That's one of the things we're looking for. It's critical thinking. It's strategic thinking. 
And when they're doing that, at the same time they're preparing themselves for the, to make that presentation and committing themselves to the organization, they're realizing, yeah, this is a real opportunity, and here's how I'm going to execute on this. So they're building their own mentally. They're building their own 30, 60, 90-day plan so that when they join and they hit the ground, they hit the ground running. There's no ramp-up time. You know, they have a plan and execution time. Yeah. In your book, you talk about, we're going to continue on the screening theme here, there are four common failures to avoid, and we won't get into all four, so we'll pick the one that drives me nuts, and you can maybe comment on it. Four common failures to avoid, one of them be an industry experience. Well, why would industry experience be a common failure to avoid? Well, just because someone has experience in the industry doesn't mean they can solve your problem. In the last five or seven years, the business world has changed so much that having experience in the taxi industry probably didn't do anyone at Uber any good. They needed people that understood consumer behavior. They needed people that understood marketing. They needed people who understood IT and how to blend all that together. You know, they needed a systems person. So looking inside the taxi industry for a president or a VP of sales or a VP of marketing would have been a waste of time. And you look at all the startups that have happened the last 10 years, and you look at the backgrounds of the individuals, you know, they don't have industry experience because there was no experience. There was no industry to have any experience from. So what do you do in that case? You have to look at critical thinking skills, ability to assess situations, leadership skills, all that kind of stuff. So people get caught in, I've got to hire someone out of the industry, and unless they're hiring the number one person out of another organization, they're not going to be any farther ahead. And why would the number one person walk across the street to work with you? And if they did, what makes you think they're going to stay? These are all the things that people need to think about and ask themselves about, but they typically don't. Because in our business, it's really easy to take a VP of sales out of a semiconductor company that's at whatever level and put them into another semiconductor company because it ticks all the boxes for the people who are doing the hire because hiring is as much about risk avoidance, not making a mistake, not having egg on their face, as it is about getting the right talent give you a good example. Many years ago, 2005, we're doing a search for a VP of sales, this new concept called SaaS, Software as a Service. And it's for a company that has invented IP fax telephony. So you don't need the machine anymore. Novel stuff. I sit down with the CEO and the other owner, small company, and I go through what they're looking for in a VP of sales. And they finally called me, and I still have all this stuff. They finally called me because they had interviewed either 72 or 77, I can't remember, I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me, people over the previous year, some of them four or five times, and couldn't, for whatever reason, their gut said no, and they didn't hire any of these VPs of sales. And I read the list, and I go back to the CEO, and I said, yeah, so I know most of these people, and you're right, they're great people, but they're not for this role. They were interviewing senior sales executives who were selling software and systems that took anywhere from three months to a year. When you're selling a SaaS product that costs 29 bucks, you need a whole different mentality. So I said, listen, here's what we're going to do. So I brought in a bunch of people, and we benchmarked against them until I found someone personality that fit. And then I picked up the phone. I'd met the, you know, the guy that we ended up hiring. I'd met him probably five years earlier. And I called him and said, you know, where are you right now? And he said, well, I'm in a car. I said, well, listen, I'm coming to have lunch with you, and I want to present this opportunity. And the reason we hired him 
was because he had been running a mobile phone company where you're selling services at $39, $49 a pop, and it's volume. So we had to find someone who had sold to sold in a manner that matched how the company's buyers bought, if that makes sense. And I remember bringing Rudy, Rudy Rickman is his name, I remember bringing Rudy into the interview, and the CEO says, well, you know, I'm not sure he can handle the, the three to five salespeople that we're going to, you know, eventually get to. And I said, well, no. I said, why do you say that? He says, because he's so laid back. He's not alive. And I'm thinking, oh, God. I said, listen, there's something about Rudy I'm not allowed to tell you. That got his interest. So I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let you discover it on your own. I said, go over to your computer. So I had him Google Rudy Rickman and do an image search. And he goes, well, this is Peter Townsend. I said, no, that's Peter Townsend. That's Rudy Rickman. I said, this guy has 14 gold and platinum records to his credit. He's a drummer. I said, he played at Wimberley. 100,000 people in the audience. I think he can handle the three to five people that he's going to have to hire and manage. Now he's doing you know, what he was doing. And we brought him in, and he took them from $8 million to $77 million in five years, and he exited $213 million. And he's about to do his third exit in the last five years. That was matching what the client really needed skills-wise, fit-wise, very precisely. But if we had just gone out and looked for people in the industry, there were no comparables. There was no industry. SAS didn't exist in 2005, really. It was at its infancy. We need to go beyond that. Well, and I think good executive search firms challenge the criteria when required that they're given. I always tell people you can't read the label from inside the bottle. I like that. For my chair, here's kind of what it looks like. You know, it's a little shades of gray, and you say it's bright blue. I don't think it is. And let me tell you why. So a couple questions for both of you. You can pick who answers this. Biggest misconception about an executive search firm is what? In my mind, the biggest misconception is they're only here to make a quick buck. And what I mean by that is they want to put in the minimal amount of time, the minimal amount of effort, and they want to move on to the next project. And that's just not the case with us, for example, and other firms may do it that way as well, because we may spend months, and I mean many months, on a candidate search, and then once we get them into place, we follow up for an additional year on these people just to make sure everything's going okay. So we're not in it to just make a quick buck and get out. We have to earn it. Jim, this is David. On my end, I'd say that you know, most large-scale executive search firms don't actually have the extensive reach that most companies think they do because they're huge. And I say that because the larger a firm, typically the more clients they have, the more clients they have, the more hands-off situations they have. In fact, the backdrop of the book, the story that we tell, the case study on this, this 1,000 search was exactly that. I had hired the two of the largest search firms in the world, and they both executed on this search and came up with nobody. And the client didn't know at the time to ask the question, who's on your hands-off list? It's not something a client typically asks. Why should they? And the search firm didn't tell them for whatever reason. Maybe they thought they weren't going to be affected, probably. But it did. Two years later, two full search fees later, they had nobody to show for it. So that's the first thing. The big search firms don't actually have the extensive reach you want. In fact, they probably have less of a reach than the boutiques. And at the end of the day, good executive search isn't just about the hire, but really about the long-term value that it brings to the organization. And I think those are the two factors that most people don't stop to think about when they go out 
to hire a search firm. In, in sales, the old adage was, no one ever got fired buying IBM. Right. You can you can buy better, or you can buy cheaper, you know, sort of thing. But you're not going to get fired. So the one piece of advice you would give a company president about recruiting or conducting a search would be what? The best piece of advice. Now, this probably goes deeper than most people want to think about. Understand yourself in terms of an organization, strengths and limitations, you know, hopefully before you ever call a search firm. Um, If you call a search firm, expect them to take you through a due diligence process on the opportunity that shows your strengths and weaknesses. And if they don't do a SWOT analysis of the firm in terms of the industry and the position and everything else, they're not capable, in my opinion, of going out and doing a full search that brings in someone that's going to add value. I like that. Mark, one piece of advice? David had pretty well summed it up there, but one thing that we haven't included in the book is a recruiter scorecard. And so the hiring authority, or say it could be a CEO, president, whatever it might be, we've given them a guide as to things that they should look for with an executive search firm. For example, and David mentioned this once already, you know, is a search firm free to recruit from direct competitors? Does a search professional understand the role that you need to fill? Will an experienced search professional actually perform the search? You have search firms and some of the big names out there, Jim, and they have people on staff. We call them knife and fork salesmen, and that's all they do. They wine and dine the prospective account. But once the whining and dining is over and the papers have been signed to do a search, that person moves on to the next whining and dining opportunity to get a new client. And so the person that you're having dinner with, they're not conducting the search. Many times that is handed over to freshly minted MBAs who work at the search firm and they're mostly inexperienced people. They're there for a year. They're in. They're out. They burn out. So it's important for the company to know who's actually conducting the search. And more often than not, it's not going to be that knife and fork salesperson. And again, as I said earlier, we do provide a scorecard for companies to use when evaluating a search firm. And I can guarantee you that David and I would not even get a, a 100% score on that. Yeah. No. And if I can just follow up with one last comment, Jim, because it's important and I never thought of it until right now when Mark was talking about that. At the end of the day, who's ever doing the search or commissioning the search is going to interview a number of individuals. And obviously they're going to find out who's actually going to do the work, and that's important. They should meet them. But at the end of the day, in your gut, you got to trust this individual because you know, they have the balance of your success in their hands. So you have to trust them. So if you're going to go out and hire a search firm, interview extensively, be hard on people, the recruiters, be very demanding, and expecting excellence is a given. Be demanding, do the references, and then ask yourself when you've come down to, you know, who you like, when you've come down to one or two organizations, who do you trust? When you're sitting there across the table from these two people, who do you feel the best about? Because CEOs become CEOs because they've got good gut instinct, and you need to use that in this case. Because everybody's got a business model that they employ to go out and find people and bring them back in. Who do you trust? 
Gentlemen, is there one question today I should have asked you that I have not? Well, I thought you'd ask why is hiring the absolute top talent so important today. <laughs> so if I was to ask that question. I tell you that most businesses make changes that are small. You know, And most business changes are small, a single sale, a choice, or an interaction that doesn't add much value to a company or damage it if it goes wrong. However, hiring a leader is different. They can make or break an organization. And we give those two examples in the book, and I'll talk about them in just a second. But you know, essentially, Jim, you hire a star and you win because they're going to unleash innovation, empower employees, generate wealth for the company. You hire the wrong person, on the other hand, and you risk more than just short-term turmoil. A bad hire can affect the organization and the economy for a long time. And we were just fortunate, Jim, that while we were writing the book, the fortunes of those two companies became public example of the difference between success and failure in hiring the right leadership talent into the correct role. And you know who I'm talking about. It's Yahoo versus JCPenney. Oh, absolutely. I thought that was a great example at the beginning of your book. But go ahead and refresh <laughs> people. horrified it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, What's the difference between hiring well and hiring poorly? Well, for the first time, we could actually quantify it. It was $21.3 billion. Yeah. You know, after struggling for years, Yahoo hired Marissa Mayer, and it took six kicks at the can to get it right. But when she came on board, the market value at Yahoo increased by $17 billion in six months. And when JCPenney brought Ron Johnson on as CEO, sales dropped $4.3 billion. Now, Ron was great success at Apple, but not JCPenney. In my opinion, wrong fit. But... Mm-hmm. There's the difference. $17 billion up, $4.3 billion down, it's net $21.3 billion. And a lot rides on who leads your company, and the risks are higher now than ever. The global economy applies pressure and creates volatility that you have to react to. And shareholders demand faster results than they used to. And at the end of the day, you know this, you're in the business. The single greatest opportunity that an organization has to improve both performance and culture in one stroke lies in hiring a new executive, but only if it's the right executive. Absolutely. Well, David and Mark, thanks for all the great insight, and thanks for being on our program today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for asking, Jim. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.